Chapter Seven of A Bachelor's Dream by Mrs. Hungerford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It was not to be wondered at that Dr. Brudnell, coming down to breakfast at the usual time, some five hours later, should have looked what Mrs. Jessop called as pale as the very tablecloth itself, or that he should have but little desire either for the meal or his Sunday paper. The very children, coming in by and by, to bid him good morning before going to church, loudly expressed their astonishment in a shrill trio as to Uncle George's funny looks, and rather rebelled at the unusually curt greeting and dismissal which he gave them. Even the governess's eyes opened a little wider as she looked at him, but she gave him her hand with her usual shadowy smile and expressed no interest or surprise not that she would have learned anything had she been as concerned as she was indifferent for george brudnell reflecting upon and recalling his adventure of the night before fully realizing his own position had come to the conclusion to dismiss and forget it if he could and to speak of it to no one the doctor was a shrewd man and understanding his fellow men in their mental as well as their physical natures knew very well that such a story if it were not entirely discredited would be at any rate doubted and cavilled at the general opinion would be that there was some truth in it but not much he was a sensitive man disliking and dreading ridicule and he came to the conclusion that no possible good could result from his publishing the story he did not know the men the street the house and the locality were alike unknown to him when speech could do no good could throw no light silence became wise he would be silent he fell asleep in his comfortable chair presently and waking up in a couple of hours was cheerful more cheerful than usual it happened that he was not called out and that there were no visits that he was absolutely obliged to make so he spent the day about the house and garden enjoying his leisure almost boyishly he romped with the children in the garden, swung them, played ball with them, would have even run races with them, perhaps, as they earnestly besought him to do, had the weather been cooler. Suddenly he caught sight of the perfect face of Alexia Bouchafin at the window, with her brother beside her, and meeting her dark eyes, was a little abashed for the moment. He did not play with the children any more, and the young rebels wondered why, after being in such an absolutely seraphic temper, he should turn cross so suddenly. Perhaps it was not her watching that vexed him, but the scrutiny of that other pair of eyes, for slowly and reluctantly George Bretnell had by this time made up his mind that with every desire to like this handsome young gustave 
Buchefin, he could not do so. Prejudice, no doubt, said the doctor to himself, when presently, after having discreetly quieted his nephews and niece by a gift of sixpence each, he sat down to smoke a cigar in his study. But upon my word, I shall be glad when the young fellow is out of the house. Well, this post at Langley's will be a pretty good chance for him if he chooses to stick to it. If he has any sense, he will. I'll tell her this evening, by the way. He did not see Alexia again until the children were sleeping and the twilight was fading at the approach of night. Then, looking from his study window, he saw her, tall and erect, in her black dress, pacing the gravel walk beside the trimly kept lawn. Her brother was at her side again, and they were talking earnestly, absorbedly, he with his usual redundancy of gesture, she with unfailing calmness. It seemed that they were arguing about something, he urging, she resisting, for presently she flung off the hand which she had placed upon her arm and turned her back upon him. His face darkened. The lines about his mouth grew hard. He spoke a word or two, regarding her with a curious smile, and then, turning upon his heel, without waiting for a reply, went into the house. Dr. Brudnell paused, stood hesitating for a few moments, then went out and joined her. She would have moved away as he approached her, but, with his usual diffident, shy manner toward her, he begged her to remain for a little while, as he had something to say. Then she turned and walked beside him, her eyes fixed intently upon him in the gray dusk. Had he kept his eyes upon her face, instead of nervously looking away, he would have seen upon it curiosity and signs of apprehension too scornful and contemptuous for fear. I will only keep you a moment, mademoiselle. I wanted to say that with regard to your brother, yes, sir, I am glad to tell you that I have been successful in my efforts on his behalf. There is, in the business house of a friend of mine, a post vacant which I think will probably suit him, and which he is likely to fill credibly. Indeed, I may say that it only awaits his acceptance tomorrow. Her eyes had wandered away from his face when he began to speak. Now they came back quickly, leaning brightly in the dusk. He was taken aback and yet he wondered why, for she merely repeated, Tomorrow? I was merely going to add that tomorrow an interview will probably settle the business. Ah, sir, you see, you are so kind, so good. How can I thank you? What can I say? George Brudnell, listening, looking, lost his head. He had meant to tell her, what he had to tell quietly and coolly, make light of the thanks which only embarrassed him, and so go back soberly to his book and cigar again. But he met her eyes, heard her voice, 
and the resolve was gone. He never knew what it was that he said to Alexia Buchafin, in what words he clothed his passion, in what phrases he pleaded. He only knew that she listened for a moment impassively, that the next time the cold blankness of her face was gone, that it was replaced by a look of scorn, incredulity, pity, contempt. He did not know what, that an instant later she had wrenched away the hand he had taken, had burst into a laugh that rang out shrilly in the groom, and that he was standing alone, bewildered, thinking that her laugh had sounded like an echo of the laugh that he had heard last night in that mysterious house, the laugh of the gray-haired man with the scar upon his cheek. Alexia Buchafin, moving with a rapidity unlike her usual slow, graceful motion, had rushed into the house and up to her sitting-room. Her brother was there, evidently waiting for her, but he was not waiting for anything like this. She looked at him for a moment, then drew herself into a chair and shrieked with hysterical laughter. Gustave Buchafin was cautious. He hurried to the door, shut and locked it, returned and grasped her arm firmly. What is this? Control yourself. Consider. Her wild laughter was already dying away. It was evident that she had to exercise rigid self-control to prevent it from turning to still wilder sobbing. She sat for a few moments with her hands pressed over her eyes, her breast heaving convulsively. When she looked at him, rising as she did so, her eyes dilated and gleamed. This night, she said, this night of all others to choose. To choose for what? To make love to me. Think of it. Bah, what did I tell you but just now? He returned sullenly, releasing her arm. You laughed, fool as he was, tool as you had made him. He was not fool enough for that. You said, eh, was he not? I knew how it would be. Did I not tell you so before I even entered this house? Looking at her, he laughed grimly. What a fool, an idiot. Bah, she retorted with a bitter smile. What think you? Does he know? I could laugh at myself, for I am almost sorry. For him? Why not? He is a good man in his way and he has been kind. Don't look at me like that, she cried with sudden passion, a swift rush of blood tinting the pallor of her cheeks. What do you think he is to me, this man, but the tool I have made him? He has not harmed me. He represents nothing that has harmed me. I would not hurt him as I would not hurt a child. Ah, that is all? He looked at her keenly. Good, and yet last night. Well, she said defiantly, last night I saved him. What then? He could do us no harm. He had done us good, 
and our use for him was nearly over i may say now that it is over unless we fail fail she echoed contemptuously what did you say to him he asked after a moment's pause nothing what should i say i rushed away what does it matter i shall not see him again true he glanced at the clock eight he said turning toward the door as though to close the conversation by leaving the room you will not forget the time i shall not and he added warmingly you will not blench this time she did not hear him she had drawn from her breast the tiny roll of red marked paper and holding it upon the palm of her hand was looking at it with a curiously intent and bitter smile good said gustav Buchefin with satisfaction and he went out and left her end of chapter seven